Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. All right. Welcome to True Crime Uncensored. I am the legendary Burl Bear. Mark Boyer, fact checker, co-host. Sitting right there. Producer, Magic Bat Allen. Joining us on the phone, my favorite former corrupt cop. <laughs> and an expert on police corruption. And he keeps tabs on it, too. He's got a great YouTube channel. You should be watching his episodes constantly. Ken Urell. Welcome back, Ken. Hey, Bill. How's it going? Uh, pretty good. It should be a fun show today. Uh, I'm going to set this up here. Uh, my co-host, uh, as you probably know, Mark Boyer, was very active in the uh, investigation of the Ramparts police scandal here in Los Angeles uh, several years ago. Uh, very yes, early. I, re- I remember from our last interview. Yeah, and of course you're very familiar with police corruption because you were it. <laughs> that's, that's, unfortunately, that's true. <laughs> and uh, since then, uh, most recently, not only did you uh, join uh, Frank Gerardo and myself in writing a brilliant book, Betrayal in Blue, which is still selling like uh, little dollar hotcakes, I'm happy to say. you got a movie coming out. I wonder who's going to play you. That should be interesting. Uh, do you have any- I don't know. They have not started testing yet. They're um, still at the uh, script stage. I hope there's about another few months until they complete a script. Oh, well, we'll help them if they want. <laughs> <laughs> they should bring you in as a consultant, of course, to uh, make sure. Yeah, they've come down, and I've, I've spoke to them a couple of times. The uh, director is Ben Stiller. Oh, good. And the screenwriter is Bo Wilmon, who uh, did House of Cards. Oh, wow, that's good. good good combination. Really good. Yep. Should, should be a good film. Uh, so we're going to talk about police corruption. You've got some great examples recently, because uh, you've got a great YouTube channel uh, that you do where you uh, talk about some of the latest exciting episodes. And I'll tell you, uh, Mark raised an interesting question, which I'll have him ask right now, <laughs> about uh, perception of police corruption. Mark, go ahead and uh, see if your microphone works this time. Right uh, in the middle of it all, welcome back. Um, There's some 900,000 law enforcement officers in the United States. How many do you think it takes to be corrupt to make corruption systemic? It's nowhere near systemic, that's for sure. They're isolated incidents. In fact, a lot of a lot of the stories that I report on, are, uh, like some of them don't even have nothing to do with police corruption. They're just cops that get arrested for, uh, a lot of them are love triangles where they commit assaults and murders on their lovers. Um, some, some are outside crimes where uh, that have nothing to do with their time as cops on the job. It's, uh, one guy in Boston created a uh, state company in his wife's name, and he bribed a public official to get him government contracts, and then they paid out on those contracts. No kidding. Well, let's take a look here. Uh, Mark very kindly looked up the definition of police corruption, which I think might be good for us to know. Uh, the word corruption originates from the Latin term corruptus, which it does, uh, meaning to disrupt, break, spoil, or contaminate. In very narrow terms, corruption constitutes the misuse of power for private gain. Now, private gain is not necessarily related to monetary. It could be uh, any kind of gain. Power, position, something Laundry like soap. Laundry soap, Yeah. <laughs> Something that smells yeah. good. I mean, I mean, you could go to the lowest, lowest forms of corruption where, you know, a lot of cops start when, they, when, when they're rookies. They go and they get a free cup of coffee, a free meal, or something like that. That's based on their, their position in the police department. Yeah. That's why the uh, public gives them free food. Yeah, did you get a lot of free food? Always, always free food. Free food, free booze, free cigarettes if you smoke, everything is free. And that's uh, because it's a cheap form of uh, security for the bodega owners, you know. They give away some free food and cops will come by all the time and the criminal moment 
recognizes that police come by that establishment and they don't want them. Right. Well, that's a wise investment. Yes, what? When I was in high school, I worked at the local McDonald's. <clears throat> and I worked the night shift. You know, we, you know, leave, you know, work all night and close oh. at 2 o'clock. Yeah. Um, and I was in the Van Nuys Division's auspices in, the, in Encino. And the chief of the night watch, chief of police for the night watch, would come by. I was a, um, <clears throat> a swing shift manager, you know, a glorified, uh, you know, you tell other people what to do as a kid. Yeah, hand me that burger. <laughs> well, and uh, in the, the morning shift would have all of the donuts and crawlers and pastries and stuff that were left over. And one of the jobs that, as a swing shift manager was to P&L, profit and loss, these items. So you would note which ones, what didn't, what didn't sell on the sheets, and you'd throw it away. Well, I wouldn't throw it away. I boxed them up. And uh, the chief of police would come in, uh, get a cup of coffee, and I would give him the box of pastries that I P&L'd. P- yeah, I profited and lost it on the sheet. So I didn't throw them away. I just gave him to the... And then he would take it to the precinct and donuts would be had for whoever, how many were there. And then we would get two extra drive-bys at night while we were, you know, after midnight. And uh, two officers would come in, even though the store was closed, we'd give them coffee and they would sit for a little while. And... It was very visible that the police were there and kept us safe until an idiot district manager saw what I was doing and made me stop. And the extra drive-by stopped and we got robbed. (laughs) I I shouldn't laugh, but... Exactly. Well, that goes to show that sometimes corruption is beneficial. Well, the, the criminal element will, will definitely take notice of you. The cops are not coming by here no more. In fact, you could have been one of your one of the uh, the workers in the store. Hey, cops don't come by here no more. Tell his buddies to come rob the place. Yeah, wouldn't surprise me. I just figured out today that I, when I get a brand new cash app card, and the only place I use it is a certain gas station. Within ten minutes after me using my card at that gas station, someone is buying something in Sweden. Oh my God! Skin is set up all over the place. Gas station. Yeah, and so then I have to get a brand new card. But I'm not using my card at that gas station anymore. (laughs) Now there's different categories of police corruption. So I got to run through. uh, There's nine of them, and uh, see these ringing cosmic bells. Corruption of authority, attaining perks without contravening the law, such as receiving free meals, beverages, etc. Kickbacks, money, services, or goods obtained for business referrals, promoting a, a company or an individual. Opportunistic theft, stealing from people who've been arrested, engaged in accidents, or from victims or from deceased people who can't complain. Turning a blind eye, bribes undertaken for uh, committing a felony arrest or seized with property. Protection of illegal activities. You sound familiar to that one, huh? Protecting criminal um, groups. Unfortunately, I've crossed every line so far that you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, protecting criminal groups or individuals. Fixing, undermining criminal investigations or deliberately losing traffic or speeding tickets. Direct criminal activity. Uh, uh, engaging in crimes against individual property uh, to attain individual advantage. Internal payoffs. Uh, when promotions, annual leave, shift allocations are bought, traded, and vended. And we're adding and planting evidence when evidence is planted to frame an individual or a group, which is usually within drug cases. And those are the nine established categories of police so, corruption. So I crossed the line on the first seven, last two I, I didn't do. Oh, well, that's seven out of nine. That's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess. Yeah. Now, that was a long time ago. Uh, 30 years ago, I was arrested. 90, 1992. Wow. When, after you were arrested, 
how long did it take for you to go, gee, I guess I screwed up? <laughs> As they were pushing the cuffs on my wrist. Oh, that was fast. Yeah, I, I sort of I sort of like pretty fast. Yeah, some people it just never sinks in. Yeah. Uh, now, some reasons for police corruption. Now, here are the underlying reasons, according to research. Managerial absence of visibility. Secrecy of managers preserving police culture, even if corruption prone. Low salary and status issues. And affiliation with criminals that hinders the performance of police duties. <coughs> I would think that the lure of easy money is a, a big one. Well, the, the low salary and the uh, association with criminals was there, and you know, growing into greed was it's big with me. You know, we had on uh, what's his name, uh, Mr. Chris from uh, uh, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, where they talk about the as far as drugs that. Uh, the lure of money from drug people to the police paid them more money to let it slide than to arrest them. Uh, exactly. It's a big temptation. And it certainly yeah, and, you know, and the criminal's not going to complain. If they get arrested by a legitimate officer, they get, they're arrested, they're in the court system, they lose all their cash, they lose all their drugs. The corrupt officer is just taking a piece. They still have the, the criminal still has their freedom. You leave them some cash, you leave them some drugs, and you both walk away happy. Yeah, sounds good to me. But, <laughs> but he would have been a good officer right there with us. Yeah, that's uh, see, that's a big temptation. You were making uh, what thirteen thousand a year as a cop? <coughs> uh, yeah, when I was hired, it was nineteen thousand dollars as a rookie. Yeah, and how much were you making uh, providing protection for uh, uh, Mr. Diaz's organization? 8,000 cats a week. Whoa, that's a big difference. Yeah. Quite, a, quite a bit. In two weeks, I made a year, yearly salary of, of my rookie. <coughs> wow. Now, when you're getting that much money, which is a hell of a lot more than the other guys on the force, and you're probably getting a nicer house and a nicer car, doesn't anybody notice... Depending how uh, careful you are with spending that money. Yeah, my partner went out, and as everybody knows from the 75 documentary and our book, he went out and bought a brand new red convertible Corvette and drove it to the precinct. <laughs> Gee, is that a red flag or just a red Corvette? <laughs> just, just about, yeah. But then again, so. superiors at the NYPD in your day didn't do much about it because they didn't want another scandal. Exactly. There was a scandal just before us in another precinct, and uh, when they caught on to what was going on in '75, they didn't want another scandal. So a lot of cops ended up quitting the job. They transferred a lot. Better movie or not? I think it might be in the uh, documentary where uh, you guys show up and, and uh, your partner steals some heroin, <laughs> stashes it in a bag on top of a garbage can or something. Yeah, we. Uh, it was a cold shot fired. We drove up to the scene, and there was a dead dead male at the, right at the front door. The front door was open, and we went, you know, so we searched to make sure there was no uh, criminal elements in, in the place, no murderers who killed him, and found him empty floor, empty on the first floor. We went up to the second floor <coughs> in space, and we started going through... Uh, dresser, drawers, and, and closets, and we found like two ounces of heroin. My partner put it in a lunch bag, and as we were leaving, the boss was coming up the steps, so he, here he is walking with this brown paper lunch bag with two ounces of heroin in it. So obviously, the boss is gonna see it, so there happened to be a garbage pail at the top of the stairway. He put it in the garbage, put it right on top, and then we walked around the banister and started going down the stairs, and as he passed the boss coming up and he was going down, he reached over the banister, took out the two ounces of heroin, and off he went and ended up selling it. Huh. That's a good day's work. Up the boss. <laughs> well, that, you know, our, our pal Punch, who you're familiar with, Pablo <clears throat> uh buddy of his happened to come across uh, one of those rooms where everyone's uh, counting the money, you know? <laughs> and, uh, uh, so they dressed up like cops and raided the place, took the drugs, and took the money. 
Like I said, there was two ways of making big money where you were either sell drugs or rub drug rob drug dealers and you did both. Yep. Now I got a question for you. Well we talk a lot to these uh former mob guys who are making millions, making tons of money. At the end of their careers, we go, you know, they're living like in Section 8 housing. And I go, where the hell did the money go? <clears throat> you know, you're making all this money. Where is it? When you were arrested and they came after you, did they make you pay back a lot of money? Or did you just spend it? No, I do. I had a large fine. I had a... Uh all my you know, money was confiscated from my house. So there was, there was a lot of things going on. And, and, you know, and then you have lawyer fees, too. That's true. So. Lawyers aren't cheap. <laughs> Not, so thankfully, I had a very a very good lawyer. And he, he made some uh, great moves for me. Yeah, well, you also became a cooperating witness, which is different than being a confidential informant. Exactly. The big difference. A confidential informant is somebody who's on the street doing crimes and reporting on other people. A cooperating witness is somebody who gets arrested for his crimes with everyone else and then cooperates after the arrest. Yeah, and they ask you everything. And if you don't tell them everything, if you leave something out or you lie to them, you're screwed. Right. What they did was they gave me... uh, an offer it's called Queen for a Day where you sit down with them at a proper session and you tell them every crime you were ever involved in and if they ever catch you in a lie in any of that but you know there's other cooperating witnesses if your stories don't line up or evidence things like that don't line up your your uh, Queen for a Day proper session is <coughs> they break it and they let you loose and you go back into the system now what's interesting is as uh, part of my research and my job because I'm very familiar with what the law and the rules are for confidential informants. And the actual rules are, they are not supposed to be committing crimes unless it's a very specific crime for a specific reason tied to a specific investigation. Otherwise, they're not supposed to be doing that. And yet, in every case that I've investigated where there has been confidential informants, they're just letting these guys run rampant. Exactly. Well, in order for them to be a good confidential informant, they have to run rampant and live the criminal life. They yeah, can't they're not supposed to do that. The one crime that they're investigating. Yeah, but if they do it the legal way, uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, you, it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't. If you follow the law, you, you would be a lousy snitch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they wouldn't work. They, they would, they would, you know, their deals wouldn't work. Yeah. Because either they would be found out and killed in the street, or, or the law enforcement would let them go because they're not producing. Yeah, so it's, it's, so I wouldn't want to be a CI, <laughs> unless that was Raymond Reddington on the blacklist. Because <laughs> <laughs> no. he's, he's smarter than everybody. <laughs> yeah, he may be smarter, but, you know, he lost his daughter. Okay, yeah, And it was sad. all his fault. Yeah, well, that's because she wanted to quit the series. <laughs> What else you got? Now, you having done the Rampart scandal. Uh, yes, uh, I collected uh, <clears throat> log log entries from the different uh, police systems uh, that recorded activity, including you know uh, going into the evidence locker and you know the discrepancies between how much got uh, um, picked up at the location versus how much got loaded into the evidence locker. I bet there was some big discrepancies. No. No? No. They tried their best to cover it up. You know, if they they um, uh, confiscated eight kilos, then there would be six that got stuffed in there. Hmm. Into the evidence locker, or all eight would get would get marked in, but there's only six there now, and what the hell happened? Yeah, I've seen that so happen. They, they were, so were they taking it out of the evidence locker after it was logged? That was one of their MOs, yes. Why, why not just, if you grab eight, just lock them <clears throat> and keep them for yourself? Um, in a number of the instances, um, there were officers on site 
that were not part of what was going on. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. I had an acquaintance of mine who was busted with a, an ounce or two of coke many years ago. And then when he, he took it to trial, they could not produce the evidence because it was missing. So that was that. Yeah, that's well, one of my favorite parts of uh, the Harrison Ford presumed innocent with Raul, with, uh, Raul Julia. Yeah. Great movie. Yeah, the what do you guys think of the uh, Baltimore Gun Trace Task Force? You know what they, they did recently did that HBO series We Own the City. I haven't seen that one. Have you the, seen uh, that? No, I've been happened. caught up in the the six part Dahmer thing. Uh, well, this is a you know, obviously a true story. Baltimore Gun Trace Task Force They're involved in all types of criminal activities, stealing money, drugs, planting evidence, all types of stuff. And what happened was one officer who wasn't really involved, his name was Sean Suter, S-U-I-T-E-R, and he was a detective. And when he was uh, with these guys, he really wasn't involved in the criminal activity. But after they had, one of the officers was involved in a shooting, there was no gun. So the officers planted a gun and had him find the gun to, to protect them because he was a legit officer. So when they all ended up going down, he becomes a cooperating, well, not even a cooperating witness, he just becomes a witness against them. And the day he's set to testify, the day before, he goes out and he's in patrol with a, with a rookie. They set him up with a rookie and he gets executed out in the street yeah. the day before he goes to the grand jury. Shot behind his ear, and it comes out in front of his head. And uh, they tried. First, the Emmy says, you know, it's a homicide. And then an independent review board, hired by the police department, labeled it a suicide. Oh, yeah. He shot himself in the back of the head. <clears throat> exactly. Twice. So apparently, the case is still open. It happened in 2017. The strange one that says Susan Murphy Milano investigated in Oklahoma was the guy who shot twice in the head with two different caliber bullets. And it was ruled a suicide. <laughs> As if the guy's going to shoot himself in the head once and it didn't work. He's not dead yet. So he goes and gets another gun of a different caliber and shoots himself exactly. again. That's why, you know, many people say, why don't the good cops give up the bad cops? Well, that Baltimore case is a front. The day before he's set to testify, he's executed out in the street. Yeah, that's it's that blue wall thing. Same thing with the Department of Corrections. They call that the green wall. There's a, a scandalous situation uh, uh, here in uh, L.A. with the, you know there's uh, two uh, two law enforcement bodies within the Department of Corrections. Uh, they have these little titles. You know what? What is any crimes committed within the correctional system, whether it be by correctional officers or by inmates? are investigated by this particular law enforcement body. The other one exists, this is what I find fascinating, is to follow people who are arrested after serving their time to arrest them again and get them back in prison. Because you're sure they're not going to be behaving themselves. That one kind of bothers me a little bit. (laughs) Uh, But it was so corrupt, one of the guys was going to come, came forward and he was murdered by the other guys in the, uh, you know, in, on the crew. And uh, that, 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 that's why they don't want to give nobody up. It's a dangerous, dangerous thing, you know. You're giving up guys that have guns that are already criminal. So obviously, you're taking your life in your hands by cooperating. This is it's a bad situation to be in, and you're certainly not following whatever oath he gave. I mean, there are people that could have killed you if you had misbehaved. But in either absolutely. direction. <laughs> you know? yeah, absolutely. On both ends. Yeah. Criminal yeah. side and, and the police side. Right, right. The police side could have killed you, and the criminal side could have killed you. You were lucky. <laughs> you were lucky you didn't roll over on, uh, on any of the criminals, I guess. I what happened was 99% of the people involved ended up cooperating. Well, that was good for them. Yeah. You know, everybody, you know, has to make the best deal they can for themselves. That's true. 
I remember we had uh, you and uh, Chicky were on together on the show here a while back, and he mentioned that he hadn't told whoever his uh, current uh, significant other is or was about his past until he came on the show, and he had a little explaining to do. You know, well, that, that, was, that was the same with me. I mean, my my wife stayed with me all those years, but she never knew the extent of my criminal activity until we started filming a documentary, you know, in 2012, 20 years later. Was she pissed and off? She was arrested. She knew I did things wrong, but she never knew the exact extent of it. When she found out, when Dory found out, how pissed off was she? <laughs> As you... Probably look at the raw footage of the documentary. You could probably see a lot of scenes where she's pissed off and annoyed because I told her the day before she filmed. Oh, <laughs> she's going. She wants to go retroactively beat the crap out of you. Exactly. What a sweetheart she was, really. Yeah. <clears throat> That's why we started the book with her. You know. Uh, yeah, it's good to have a you know a feminine point of view on the whole thing. Oh yeah, it's very important, especially because the true crime is a female-driven genre. So, uh, and she was such a great character, such a good person that it only made sense to start the book with your wife uh, and not with you. And uh, boy, I'm, I'm real happy for all of us, uh, for you, me, uh, Frank. Uh, that the book has got such good reviews. Especially from law enforcement people. <laughs> what was the one I read? Is, Boy, it's the most accurate, realistic book on police I've ever read. Some guys. Yeah. They feel like they're doing a ride along in the back of a patrol car. Yeah, like doing a drive along. Yeah. This is what it's like. So that <clears throat> made me feel real good about the book. Because uh, it was, a, it was a, 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 a fun book to write. Uh, and, of course, our, our source material, which came from you, was... It was just wonderful. So uh, it was a great experience all the way around. And those royalty checks in the mail every month, they help too. <laughs> they, <laughs> they help remind me. Uh, what is this? It'll be, uh, we're getting into the corruption behavior. On Why is that? Uh, wh- why, do they, why do people change? Uh, they become a police officer. Maybe they're... Their original intention is to protect and to serve, but then something happens. And it's uh, not just the greed or whatever, but the mindset changes. Their sense of identity changes. And uh, uh, they, they say it's a part of that is psychological. What kind of person were they to begin with? Uh, were they an authoritarian personality? Uh, Conservative, aggressive, cynical, rigid behavior patterns, and the corruption may involve profit or uh, material benefit because they really do this whole authority thing. Uh, other explanations are uh, exposure to police training academy, uh, in-service training, field experience, kind of shape their whole image of what it's like to be a law enforcement officer. You learn how to behave, you learn what the morals are, you have shared experiences with other police officers, and new recruits develop definitions with their peers, either positive or negative, and these are reinforced depending on what goes on in their day-to-day life as a police officer. What they see rewarded, what they see punished, what they see gets to slide. And the other is that... uh, you become part of an occupational culture. This is where that blue wall comes in, where it's a, a whole subgroup, a subculture, with its own rules, its own everything. And you put those all together, and whether it's the green wall or the blue wall, I don't know what you call it with doctors, but uh, I was involved in a malpractice suit uh, with my beloved uh, wife at the time, where uh, against the dentist, who had given her a real bad, 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 bad situation in her face. And we talked to all these other dentists who said, man, that guy just butchered her, but I won't testify because it doesn't look good for me to do that. Exactly. But one guy, one guy stepped forward and said, I can't let this stand, you know? I gotta testify, and he did. Was he retired already? He didn't have a practice anymore? No, he, uh, he actually, and bless his heart, he redid all of her work 
for nothing because he was teaching dentistry at the university and brought her in to show his class. He did $82,000. This is the 1970s. So imagine what it would cost today. $82,000 worth of work for nothing. Uh-huh. Which is great. It certainly saved me a lot of money. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> now, we were talking about prevalence. It's almost impossible to get an accurate reading on the prevalence of police corruption because it's a secret. It's not limited to um, police departments. The financial sector does everything it can to to hide any malfeasance that go on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, sure. Every, 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 field, every field, every profession has some type of you know criminal activity going on in it. Well, it's and not just the criminal activity. Down. It's the cover-up. It's the hush-hush. Um, I did a lot of um, fraud detection in my banking career. Um, <clears throat> uh, supplementary programming uh, to vet uh, what production was doing. Um, and I caught a husband and wife team that was doing the proverbial uh, fractions of a penny past, uh, you know, past cents. And they were siphoning that fraction off into random accounts or a group of accounts. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, over a year and a half, they had amassed some $750,000 in fractional pennies, fractional cents. Uh, <clears throat> and when they got caught, um, the consequence was that they were let go. Yeah. I saw the same thing happen in Walla Walla. Someone who worked for the city had embezzled an incredible amount of money, but they just hushed, hushed it. They didn't want people to lose faith yeah. in the uh, the city and their you know their ability to handle things, and they just said, "Please give the money back." And I, uh, <laughs> which I find fascinating, because touting your ability to catch the corrupt should bolster one's opinion. Of uh, of the government. Well, when they figure out it's been going on for a long time, I've mentioned this before, but there was a woman who was working at, at what was then called, I think, First Interstate Bank. She, for 15 years, she'd been pulling that same stunt. And she had secret accounts, her accounts, and it was hidden in her computer, but you had to hit a random combination of keys that only she knew that combination of keys in order to bring up the accounts that she had that were clandestine, shall we say. And she never took a vacation for 15 years because she wanted to make sure no one could ever find out what she was doing. Finally, after 15 years, fine, she could get away with it. She's going to go to Hawaii with her family. They bring in a temp worker. Temp worker turns on the computer, puts her hands on the keyboard, and accidentally, yes, it's the proper combination of keys that brings up the hidden accounts. <laughs> That's got to be divine intervention. She lands in Hawaii, and the FBI is waiting for her. So, yeah. Well, I, I did notice over my uh, 17 years in banking that... <clears throat> uh, lower level fraud or fraud at the branches um, institutions were less interested in hiding than uh, fraud from a l- more la- a larger fraud from within the organization right at the top right there were uh, there was uh, uh, an individual who recognized that they could issue um, a cashier's check twice. And so <clears throat> and so she would just look for dead accounts and issue herself cashier's checks. Or if somebody uh, was deceased and the family came in to liquidate the account, then she would just issue her, her uh, a copy of the same check. Well, how would that work? You just go to another bank and cash, and it's a cashier's check. 
the institution that issued it guarantees payment. Well, it's, it's the people inside all these, you know, different companies and and businesses that would find out that, you know, the inside secrets that where they could get away with something. It's like the uh, woman that was uh, working with us, well, not with us, with me, that she worked for an insurance company and she made up fake accounts and then made uh, issued checks to cars that were stolen or damaged that just didn't exist. And then we would cash the checks, and then she would rip up the file. <laughs> nice work. Hmm. How long did she get away with that? Well, uh, probably for two years. Huh. They didn't even catch on to it until after we were arrested, and, you know, I laid every, all my crimes on the line. Oh, I bet she was thrilled with you. <laughs> <laughs> Again, like Mark was just saying, it was... Uh, Nothing. They just let her go. They didn't get arrested or nothing. Yeah. Quite often they do first that. First of all, there's no evidence. There's no evidence for She doesn't send you Christmas so cards anymore, the, though. When the canceled check would come back to the insurance company, she'd rip up the canceled check along with the, the fake file that she made up, and, you know, the money just disappeared. Wow. I bet there's still people doing that all over America. Hmm. I'm sure there's more safeguards at this point, you know, with the computers and everything. When, uh, when I started uh, my career uh, working for a local SNL that's long since gone, um, <clears throat> um, one of the things that you do in IT is you you uh, they rotate uh, production support, nighttime support. So you get two weeks where if something goes wrong, they call you two in the morning and you have to fix it. And so one of the first things that I was taught you know uh, is that when you, when at the end of the of the evening's processing there would be a balancing program that would make sure all, everything debits versus credits every all the money was accounted for and they said now if you're off exactly 10 million dollars you're in balance what and I said, Huh? <laughs> and he said, don't ask. If you're off by $10 million, you're in balance. If it's less or more than $10 million, then there's something wrong and you got to fix it. you got to go find what's wrong. And over time, I kind of was able to glean that $10 million went missing and they were never able to find it. Woo. And so they just basically wrote it off uh, as a loss and moved on. So someone bought me off with $10 million. Apparently, yes. Of course. Jeez. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was interesting. Uh, I'm, in, I'm in a year and a half at this place. And, you know, one of the, someone in upper management said, so have you opened accounts yet? And I said, uh, I work in this department. Why would I do something that silly? <laughs> and he cracked his, he cracked him up. Sure, why would I be that stupid as to bank here? Yes. <laughs> That's problematic. You I, notice that when the banks get in trouble for doing something, the fine that they have to pay however many billions of dollars is less than how much money they made doing it? Oh, there was some, uh, there was... Um, a some large multi-billion dollar settlement last week, I forgot, um, for non-disclosure or whatever. I don't know. Who was it? Do you remember who it was? No. It was a large group. I got a check from, uh, this is where, from Bank of the West. Not Bank of the West. Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo sent me a check. I hadn't had a Wells Fargo account for years. He said, uh, Dear Mr. Bear, you had a Wells Fargo account. We think we were probably rude to you uh, 10 years ago. <laughs> and uh, so here was a class action suit, and uh, we want to apologize by giving you $146. <laughs> okay. I don't know what they did that was rude. He said they probably didn't let me have access to my account for something when they should have. But uh, they sent me money. I also got money from Amazon for Alexa listening to me without my permission. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, those settlements, 
where you got, you know, a pittance. Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the attorneys are the ones that make out. Both sides. Well, that's like if, if uh, the hospital gives out your private medical information to someone oh, who's not can't supposed do PHI. to. Oh, you can't PHI. You don't get a dime. It's a fine they have to pay, but it goes to the government, not to you. <laughs> so, well, wait a second. You violated my, my medical privacy by giving my medical information to someone who I didn't want to have it. Yes, well, we're going to pay a heavy fine to the government for that. <laughs> I, uh... <clears throat> I have to I have to watch that kind of thing specifically every day because we're working on a large uh, conversion project and we have to share information and we have to go and look at the information being shared and uh, make sure that you know that we're not jeopardizing. Uh, somebody's information, whether it's a patient or a doctor or a third party that performs services for the hospital. Now, I had one yesterday. I, people always assume I know how to fix everything. Yeah. <laughs> I get a phone call from a friend of mine. She's in you can't tears. even fix yourself. I know. It's disgusting. I get a phone call from a friend. She's in tears. Her doctor, original doctor, lived to be 102 and dropped dead. She was going to another doctor in the same clinic. And they'll ask her questions. Say, it's all in my file. If you look in my file, you'll see... Da-da-da-da-da. And the guy never would address any of the things she brought up. It was so frustrating. So finally she calls and, and says to the receptionist, such and such in my file. They go, well, we don't actually have your file. It's in storage. So for the past two years, she's been saying, look in my file. And the doctor didn't console her file because it was in storage. Um, I think there's a lawsuit there somewhere. <clears throat> These days, uh, um, hospitals have uh, third parties that do direct transcriptions of your medical record uh, into the, a computer system, and your entire his- medical history is available to the doctor at a touch of a button. Well, he wasn't touching the button, that's for sure. And then they don't, uh, they don't do paper anymore. I mean, when I was uh, younger, you'd go see the doctor, and there would be your chart, and they would write notes on the right, pages. Right, right, right. And that's no more. Everything is done off, you know, typed in on the computer. Well, they're not. Uh, they were looking at whatever file because he never looked. At he said, "Sorry, it's all in storage. We don't have it." Yeah. I said, "You can get it." Doctors take notes now on little recordings, and then they hand it out over to the transcript department, and they, they transcribe everything. Hey, listen. We uh, we got a few minutes left. I want to I want to hype your show because it's so good. But will you please share yes, with us my YouTube channel? Yeah. Uh, give us some of the more recent disgusting stories you've shared with your audience. What are some of the uh, cop, crooked cop things most recently that you've revealed on your show? Well, to get, just to get away from all these the, uh, corruption stories where they, you know, they're stealing money and drugs, I've been doing a, a lot of, like I said before, the uh, the lover triangle things. There was one, one cop, a Tennessee cop, he, him and he had a girlfriend who was also a police officer. She broke up with him. And then while he was on duty, he took his patrol car to her house, kidnapped her new boyfriend, murdered him in the back of, shot him, shot him in the head, murdered him in the back of the patrol car, splattered blood everywhere, got one of his friends to help him hide the body. And of course, you know, they caught him up. Because yeah. he killed the guy right in the back of his patrol car while he was on duty. That's not good. Yeah, no, no, that's not good. But, but those are the type of stories that I'll do, or you know, a show on because they're not really widespread stories that are, you know, you would think a story like that everybody would, would have heard about that. Yeah. But it's just, a, you know, it gets buried in in the headlines. It's not a, you know, it's not George Floyd and Derek Chauvin. Yeah. So, uh, there was another one you had with a guy. Story like that just gets buried. So those are the type of stories I try to bring to people. Well, there's one guy was doing money laundering and all sorts of other weird stuff. I, when I was working for uh, an insurance company, uh, on the other side of the, my cubicle hell wall was a person that worked the fraud division, special investigations. 
And I, I, I get to listen to these phone calls because it's just that bit, that preppy orange wall separating us. And he had one insured who was using his phone call from jail to find out when his claim would be processed so that he could bail himself out. And what he did, uh, what his claim was, his car caught on fire and was burned out. What actually happened is that this gentleman took uh, a contract, uh, eliminated the person in the contract, put them in the trunk of the car, and set the car on fire. Whoa. And then put filed a claim. And then filed a claim. <laughs> That's almost as good as the guy who robbed the bank and made a deposit. Oh, yeah, well, that guy was really nuts. I did a show on, uh, he's a Rikers Island correction officer, and he's uh, got a girlfriend, and the girlfriend's mother and brother were developing an app for the phone. So this Rikers Island correction officer invests $350,000, and the app wasn't being um created fast enough for him. So he wanted his money back, and obviously they couldn't get his money back because he was invested. So him and his girlfriend put a tracker on his, his whole mother's car, and he shows up at her house one night with a dumbbell, smashes her skull in, kills her, and there's all types of evidence because there was a witness on the scene who chased him, saw him get in a cab, the girlfriend ordered, ordered the cab from her phone, you know, all types of phone records. They found a tracker on the mother's car. So, but the bigger question is, besides him, him and his girlfriend both being arrested for murder, uh, where did he get $350,000 to invest? That's what I want to know. Yeah. But that question was never asked. No, they never asked that question? Nope. Not one, one question on that at all. Well, that's like when... Uh uh, what's his name? Uh, found out that Dave Chappelle was offered X thirty-five million dollars by uh, Comedy Central to come back to and be on the air. He was shocked when Chappelle turned down the money, but that wasn't what shocked him. What shocked him was that Comedy Central had that much money. Because <laughs> they have that much money, and they paid me this little amount. Oi. Well, you know, you look at what uh, what SiriusXM did for Howard Stern. Yeah. Hey, Matt, did you make as much money as Howard Stern on SiriusXM? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no? I don't um, know why not. You're talented. <laughs> well, yes. No, it's a given. So we're, um, we're talking about, you know, police corruption. Um, from your perspective on the corruption side of the equation is there really anything that can be done to uh, to curb corruption I, th- I think the body cans are, are a, a great asset and you know I mean obviously there are ways there are ways around it you could drop the body cam to get to turn it on you know mechanical failure whatever but uh, I, I think that's going to be a, a huge uh, asset to curb corruption. Also, people with their phones that can take pictures. Uh, sure, yeah, you've got cell phones, you got uh, the dash cams in the patrol cars themselves, but the body cams, I think, are huge. Yeah, I saw that guy who's strangling his, uh, his female partner. <laughs> that didn't go over too big. Well, yeah, we just had something happen uh, late last week where there was a, an apparent uh, kidnapping. And it turned out that it wasn't a kidnapping. They were basically in it together. And the kidnapped victim, in air quotes, pops out of the car when police stop it. And she's wearing bar- body armor and is shooting at the cops. Oh, Jesus. That, that's not good. And, you know, and then the police return fire and she's dead. And if it wasn't for the, the direct video of the process... Um, you know, there would have been all kinds of trouble. You you shot the kidnap victim? Exactly. That's, yeah, that's why uh, the body cams are, should be, every department should have it by now. Right. Um, I, did, I did a story with, uh, there was a cop that was, he was a regular patrol officer, and he was making an inordinate amount of narcotics arrests on 
just from basic traffic stop. And people were complaining that they, they didn't have no drugs, the drugs were being planted, and it was being ignored, and they were arresting these people until this one time when he flipped up, where a woman made a complaint, and they pulled the body cam, and you see on the body cam, he's actually planting the drugs in her car, and then he goes, oh, look what I found. Yeah. So they had to go back to all his cases, and, you know, all those cases are worse. But meanwhile, those people were, you know, had to spend money on lawyers, be time in jail. And the whole reason for him to do this was because he wanted to fast-track himself to narcotics by planting drugs on innocent people. What a wow. wonderful person. Yeah, unbelievable. So, um, do you think uh, internal affairs divisions um, help? I, I would say now that knowing what I know, they're, they're not as effective as they could be. You know, besides, you know, even if you get uh, an active detective from internal affairs that wants to make an arrest but like the Tromboli chased us for years and that up to deterred him so yeah well that's kind of like Michael Gordine said that he got to skate because uh, he knew who was above him that never got in trouble and he just kept his mouth shut and so you know okay bye you know uh, he protected the people above him Another another option is uh, uh, better vetting of candidates for employment. Um, I remember when I joined uh, the city uh, workforce for the LAPD, I went through two screenings, one with the LAPD and then an FBI background check, where they actually went out and talked to friends and family. And I was in. Same thing uh, that they did with me. They yeah. talked to friends, neighbors, family, right. did psychological testing, medical testing. They did everything. Right, and it does. It didn't. Checks. Right, it, it didn't necessarily it, help. The whole defund the police thing, and so many officers quitting the job. Recruitment is down to you know an all-time low. People don't want to be cops. That's why they lower the standards. And uh, I was in. Uh, an interview with an FBI agent at uh, uh, Parker Center, the LAPD headquarters there downtown. And it's just a little cube. It's kind of like a confessional without the without separating the wall. And he, go, he, he goes through all of the questions. You know, have you ever been involved in this or that? You know, white slavery, child abductions, you know... The yeah. usual stuff. All of this horrible list of things that you could be involved with, you know. Um, and then he pauses because he's moving on to the next section. And I said, uh, pardon me, but has anyone ever said yes to any of these questions? <laughs> nope. Hey, Ken Urell, look him up on YouTube, Betrayal in Blue. Ken Urell, watch it, love it. Subscribe to it. Enjoy it. And if you haven't bought our book yet, buy several copies today. <laughs> Will do. What's next? I can tell you. Magic Matt Allen and the Demons of Decadence live from the Lightning Lounge at AllerRadioLive.com. Yep. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you.